Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. My guest this week, Stacy Smith, was one of my first guests in 2019 when we talked about the creative side of mathematics and particularly about mathematical models of disease outbreaks and the occasional zombie apocalypse. We also talked about how Doctor Who influenced her decision to become a mathematician in the first place. I asked Stacy to come back and talk about her own personal gender transition, both in terms of how that's influenced her own work and what it's taught her, and also to give us an update on how her mathematical work came into play when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. I think you'll be surprised by a lot of what she has to say and also find her outlook quite hopeful across the board. And you might just find Find yourself interested in at least one of her new books. I'd like to dedicate this episode to my friend, writing mentor, and fellow Doctor Who fan, Rachel Pollock, a transgender pioneer whose long battle with cancer just ended on April 7th, but whose influence will be felt for generations to come. Here's my conversation with Stacy Smith. Stacy Smith, welcome back to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you very much for having me again. <laughs> my pleasure. So, there are a ton of things to talk about, but I feel like, hmm, actually, I feel like there are two things that we should talk about first, which of course is not possible. Um, so the first thing that we should probably talk about is the fact that the last time you were here, you had a different name. I did indeed. Yes. So, um, and, and you have a different approach to handling that different name than most people do. And so I wondered if you could kind of go go into that a little bit. Yes, yes, I'm very happy to. So, so well, I guess regular <laughs> listeners will notice I don't have a different voice. Uh, <laughs> change my voice, much to, much to my disappointment. Um, but uh, yeah, so I transitioned uh, in the meantime. And uh, we last talked in uh, 2019. I transitioned in uh, October 2020. And so... Um, uh, and yes, I guess we can get into that as we go. But uh, my my approach to this was actually I got very caught up in it because I was thinking like, how do I kind of change everything? Being someone who has twenty five books and a hundred academic articles and all these fan publications and everything, and I was like, if I try and change every single publication and interview and everything one by one, it's going to be a nightmare. And I actually thought what it's going to do is it's going to make me really depressed. I'm going to be trying to fight this fight all the time. It's going to eat up so much energy and I'm going to win some of the time. And the ones that don't are going to be really upsetting and depressing and, and things. And I just thought, you know, for my own mental health, I'm just going to not fight it. And, and I decided that what I would do is just make it historical. So anything that happened before October 2020, that was under my old name, Robert. And anything that happened after 2020 is Stacy. And so... That actually worked really well for me. I find like no problems whatsoever with being attached to my old name um, in a historical sense. Um, uh, I think because I transitioned much later in life than many people, I'm I'm a bit more chill, I think, than some people are about it. Partly because I had it for so long. It was I was 47 when I transitioned, and so you know, my my mother said, you know, she had trouble getting my new name because she's like, I knew you for 47 years. I'm like, yeah, that's a decent chunk of time. Um, so you know, it, I understand that it takes time. It, it's an adjustment for people. Um, I always joke that, you know, if, if people just learned my new name because I told them, my job teaching calculus would be a lot easier. 
people people don't learn like this. They don't learn just because you tell them something. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes making mistakes, getting it wrong, falling backwards, going forward a bit, and you know, kind of slowly piecemeal, kind of getting it all together. And by having that approach, I found actually I was much more chill, and I think people around me are much more chill as well because a lot of people have said, "Oh, you seem like the one trans person who isn't going to jump on me if I get a get a pronoun wrong or something." And I'm like, I actually don't think a lot of people are going to jump on you, but I think there's been this kind of like sense that people will, you know leap on you for any tiny mistake um and for me anyway i think intention really matters like and it's not hard to tell if someone comes with good intentions and they just miss up uh, mix up my pronouns a few times or something or my get my name wrong like it happens it's a learning process um sometimes people come in with bad intentions but it's usually pretty obvious that seems sane and reasonable to me and and yeah i mean i can't i can't even imagine trying to deal with the headache of going back and, and retroactively changing that much stuff. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually I, I tried to find people to talk to and there just weren't really any older trans people who, who transitioned later in life, who had this kind of like, you know, fame, if you will. Um, and because, you know, people have done it, but like they didn't have too much to erase or something relatively speaking. And you know, like Caitlyn Jenner wasn't really returning my calls. <laughs> so, like, who, who do I talk to? Um, I eventually found an author um, in the Doctor Who world who'd written some books, and she did the opposite. She actually did change everything, but she'd published through Amazon and stuff like that, where you can change things. But academic publishing is notorious for not changing stuff. Um, I've had enough trouble with the question mark in my name because sometimes they leave that off. Um, and usually, though, I can argue my case based on the fact it was their mistake, not mine. And even then, it takes forever, and it's a huge fight, and and you know. Like it's just, it's a lot of energy eaten up. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, having, having got a bit of advice from somebody, I was like, all right, okay, at least I got something, but yeah, it's very hard to find. I actually found this is a bigger problem that there just aren't really trans mentors around. And I, I, at the time I transitioned, I was in a triad with a trans man and a trans woman. And my, my boyfriend was, um, he was director of Planned Parenthood. So he knew an enormous amount of stuff. And so I had access to a lot of information. Uh, my girlfriend had been through very similar things to me. She was also Australian and had a very similar background. Um, but my boyfriend told me, he's like, you will be mentoring baby trans people in no time at all. And I was kind of like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, you know, how can I mentor someone else? And he's like, yeah, but you have mentoring skills. And I was like, oh, that's true. I do that for my day job. I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm also just naturally inclined, I think, to kind of like, you know, mentoring as a process and kind of reaching a hand on the ladder to help people on, the, on their way up. Um, and and I, suddenly I found it immediately true. I was on like, you know, grinder, and people would be like, oh my God, I think I might be trans, like help. And I was like, all right, fine. Let's, let's take off the sexy hat. Let's put on my mentoring hat. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Wow. Oof. I hadn't even thought about that piece, but, but yeah, there's gotta be a huge demand for that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I found it in my students as well. Um, I, I remember thinking like, you know, like, like, do I want to be really very public about this? And then I sort of thought, you know what, I could really do some good just by existing. And that sure came true. And actually just the other day I was, I was checking calculators in my class, making sure everyone had the right one. And, and somebody, you know, quiet student, the very back row hands me a calculator and I slide open the case to check it's the right one. And it is, and there's the trans flag. And they had this moment of like, oh my God, I've been caught. And this person completely passed. Like, I would not have guessed they were trans at all. And I saw the flag and we had this moment of eye contact. <laughs> it was kind of like, right, yes, okay, I'm trans, you're trans. We don't need to say anything, but it's all it's all good. And it was right in the middle of an exam. So it was, it was very funny. And I was like, right, this person's been sitting in my class for weeks, like months now. And I had no idea. And they didn't need to approach me or anything. But I was like, I bet I'm doing so much good just by being there. Right, right. I mean, and I've seen so many posts on social media about David Tennant wearing his trans pin 
ever since mm-hmm. I think is it his son and you know everybody's just like over the moon about it and I think that 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 is huge too it's the you know different context but the same mm-hmm. kind of thing it's like yes we see you and it's okay yeah I, I have to say that the 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 most the easiest bathroom experience I had was at my first U.S. convention since COVID. And, and I, you know, the bathroom is a scary place to be as a trans woman. And I was sort of thinking like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm in the U S for the first time since COVID and, you know, like the first time since transitioning. And then I, I, I gave a panel and I gave a couple of panels on the weekend and I, I went to the bathroom and suddenly everyone was in the bathroom and all these women are like, Oh, I love your thing. And I'm like, Oh, thank you. And I'm like, I normally never say a word in the bathroom because my voice will give me away. And I was just like, Oh, this is totally chill. No one is looking at me like you don't belong here. They're just like making conversation, which I have discovered is a thing that happens in the women's bathroom that does not happen <laughs> in the men's bathroom. <laughs> and so that's a bit of a bit of an adjustment. Um, but I was like, Oh, I feel completely comfortable being in this space. And that I was not expecting at all. But I think sort of fan circles tend to be a lot more accepting in a lot of ways. And so, you know, gender and sexuality stuff is, you know, I think there's a way in which we're all kind of outcasts already. So we kind of get it. And I think that people who haven't experienced being an outcast in some way, for them, it's a much harder thing to to grasp. But if you're, you know, you've been bullied for being a nerd, well, you've been bullied for being queer, you, you know, we're kind of all in the same like bullied gang. So, you know, we might as well just get along. Right, right. And before we get too far into that, I just want to say for people who haven't heard the first conversation that we have, it's it's up. You have to go back to May 1st, 2019. It's called Modeling Disease Outbreaks, and it is under Robert Smith, and you'll find it there. Um, and that's where you'll hear the whole creative journey that we usually go into in the first episode, which we're not going to today because it's already up there. But um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, I have definitely found it fascinating when I go to a con the you know the amount of cosplay that transcends gender boundaries and, and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff and i think you know by definition a con is where you can let your freak flag fly no matter yeah. how it comes out anyway so it seems really kind of a natural thing to me that that would have happened when you know that nobody would bat an eye at least yeah, i would certainly yeah. hope not I, I'm yeah, sure that, that it happens mm-hmm. in certain circumstances, but I would hope that it would happen on a, a less regular basis. Yeah, I, it, it's definitely in the minority, which is is okay. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember somebody said once, like, you know, the thing about conventions is like the most embarrassing thing about you is the reason you're there. <laughs> and right. So you might as well just chill out. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, right. Oh my, you know, my my incredibly embarrassing, you know, fan hobby <laughs> is actually the reason we're all in the same place. So you know, nothing really matters in this space. It's a very protected space. Right. And and there's a quote, I was just looking at the trailer from Doctor Who Am I the other day, and there's someone in that trailer who says something like, you know, this thing that you love more than you're supposed to, that other people don't <laughs> understand because you love it more than you're supposed to. Yes, and you walk much. into this con and everybody else who's there loves it more than they're supposed to, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing experience, even if you only connect with it on that level. And then you can go on so many other levels with it, too, as soon as you walk yeah. into a con. Yeah. Actually, I, one of my early transitioning experiences was I, I was dating someone who had met at a doctor convention, and then we were at a different one. And then we were spending a lot of time in our hotel room. And then she, she did makeup on me. It was the first time I'd had makeup done. And this was some years before I transitioned. And then we went down to go to the dance and and I went out in makeup and I was like, oh my God, I'm out here. And I thought, wait a minute, 
no one's going to care. Like this yeah. is a convention. People cross-play all the time. Like it's fine. And, I, and it, so it was a really safe place for me to do some exploring in, in the early days. I love that. That's just so perfect. <sighs> it never <laughs> occurred to me that that would be the environment where someone would get to do that for the first time, but it's absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know that, that you have, because you have the, the mentoring and you're in the classroom and everything, and mm-hmm. you, you've taken on the idea that you're basically an open book about all of this, because if, if people don't take the time to educate, then we're still going to bump up into all of the ugly issues that we've been seeing more and more in the last couple of years. And I'm wondering, like, how has that affected both your transition process and also your teaching process? I mean, has that caused trouble for you (laughs) while you're teaching or has it pretty much been accepted in the classroom and in the administration or? Yeah. So, so I would say generally speaking, I've had a dream run. I've had almost no problems. I've had little tiny things here and there, but really nothing to speak of. Um, And this was quite a shock to me because I, for for some years, (laughs) I'd sort of said, oh, I wouldn't transition unless society made it easier. And I sort of thought, I, I can live without this. It looks like way too much hassle. Like, oh my God, I'm going to be fighting every battle. You know, everyone on the street is going to harass me. All, you know, everything that can go wrong will go wrong every day. And I thought, I don't know if I have the energy to, to do that. Um, and effectively what happened was society did make it easier. And so I talked to some people and they said about 2018 was about the inflection point. Um, and you sort of had Me Too and you had like some other things. And and when I talk to like people who transitioned before about 2018, their stories are kind of horror stories. And, you know, they're like, like certainly like in Canada and Australia, say, which are, you know, not, not a bit different from the U S which is undergoing a different kind of thing. Um, but, you know, people saying like, it was, it was difficult. And after 2018, it wasn't that difficult. And I was definitely post 2018. So for me, it was surprisingly difficult. And I think a lot of that is actually just the sheer amount of privilege that I have as, you know, white tenured professor, you know, like very confident. I'd also done all my therapy. I I, I really knew who I was already. Um, and then I transitioned, which I think is pretty rare. I think most people are struggling a lot with their identities when they transition. And so, you know, I'd separated those two. So lo- lots of things kind of fell into place for me. Um, and I, I had some pushback, but there wasn't, it wasn't bad pushback. Like my, my colleagues, like they're, they're mathematicians. They're sort of like small C conservative. And so they don't really get it. Um, but they don't really oppose it either. Like, it was kind of like, like they were like, oh, you want to do this weird thing? Okay, well, you know, but th- their major objection, which I knew would happen, was they said, but what about the students? Like, you know, you you can't do this in front of the students. And I was like, I'm just going to stop you there because no one under 35 is going to have any problem with this whatsoever. <laughs> and I kind of threw that as a glib line, but I was like, actually, I think that's true. And that has certainly been my experience. Uh, and I've not had any problems at all from students, not even slight things, um, very occasionally they'll misgender me and then they fall over themselves to apologize. <laughs> even when, like, I don't even correct it, they'll correct each other and then they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, and so, like, they they fully understand stuff. Um, and my colleagues were very surprised by this, I think, because I think they suddenly felt like dinosaurs, which they kind of were. <laughs> and they were like, wait, what? And I was like, if you have a problem, you have to own it. And I basically just sort of challenged them to look me in the eye and, and come at me. And they backed down. And I found this a really good, strategy. Um, I've had like a lot of people kind of like be like, oh, I wouldn't be into trans people or so on. And then I've put myself in their space and I was like, right, you've got to do this in in person. And it's not quite so easy when somebody's there. Um, that's especially true, I think, when you've known the person a long time. Uh, I, I I live in Canada, but I'm from Australia. So when I went back to Australia, like once, once things had opened from COVID, having transitioned and it had been about a year or so, um, 
And then my mother had told me like all the different relatives and so forth who would like not be okay with my pronouns and not be not going to use my new name and all sorts of things. And so I went and put myself in the space of every single one of them, made them look me in the eye. And then it was like, kind of like a double dare you to do it. And they all backed down. And it was quite amazing. Like, it was just one by one. I didn't even think they would. I just thought, okay, we're going to have this out. And, I, and I, I had backup plans in one case. There was an aunt who was like swore blind. She would never, ever call me Stacy. And then I was like, right, I'm going to, I'm going to start calling her by her like dead husband's name, which, you know, they had a very tempestuous marriage. I thought I'm going in strong. And then I stood there, looked at her and then she completely went, oh, Stacy, hi. You know, <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I won't be needing this weapon, will I? <laughs> it was, you know, I, I was ready to go and, and it didn't happen nearly as much as I thought. I, I had a, a high school friend who sort of told me that I, I wasn't allowed to use the women's bathroom. And so then I, I went out for a drink with him and I sat deliberately right near the women's bathroom when the men's bathroom was in a totally different part of the bar. And I just ostentatiously went to the bathroom a bunch of times and he just sort of sat there and went, yeah, okay. And, and what I found was by doing this, because I had the ability to do it, uh, not everyone does. I have, you know, I'm in an unfireable job. I'm quite confident in myself. I have like, you know, well-established connections with a lot of people because I'm really a people connector. Um, it, it made people sort of, I think, face some things about themselves that in the abstract might be like, oh, I don't, don't really like that idea. But when it's, oh, wait, it's this person I knew who now I just know under a new name and they seem okay. I feel like that does a lot of good in the world because then they can talk to their friends later and say, well, actually, I do have a trans friend and so on. And my mother sort of went from being like, oh, gosh, I don't know about this. And, you know, I really liked your old name because I was named after her father. I got her to name my middle name for me. But like she, you know, she wasn't so into like my new name. She, she was particularly upset that it was an American name. <laughs> so I found that quite funny. So she, she, it's like, it's not, it's not a British kind of name, is it? It's an American name. And I was like, yes, it is actually, you're right. <laughs> and so she's like, I don't like that. And I was like, okay, well, that's your objection. That's fine. Um, but then the, the first year that I, I went, she she was kind of like, it was a, it was a work in progress to try and get names and pronouns and stuff. But the second year I was back this past Christmas, she was really on it and she clearly practiced and she was great. And she was, she was doing good ally work of kind of like correcting other people. We ran into someone and the person said, Oh, are you the one who has a son in Canada? And I was standing right there and I said, Oh, actually kind of, that's me. Like, you know, I'm the one that you mean. And my mother just very smoothly went, have you met my daughter, Stacy? I went, Oh, that's perfect. Cause I don't have to do that work. And she did it. And she just slid in there. And I think she discovered that she's actually like the cool old lady now who's cool with trans stuff. <laughs> all the old lady friends are like, they're weirded out by it. But she's like, oh, no, I'm totally fine with this. And she gets kind of kudos for doing that. So, you know, I'm like, this is really nice. And, you know, it took some time, but it, but she came around. And I feel like I'm very good at kind of like, like calmly, patiently kind of like, like just putting it out there, putting it out there, putting it out there and not being too much of a, of a scary like person. Um, and people come around. And that's generally been the case for lots of things in my life. Well, and isn't that interesting too? Like, I think when, and I think this applies in so many situations, you know, when, when we are just kind of like, hi, this is me. This is, this is the situation. This is the story. Other people have a hard time, you know, I mean, if, if I stand here and, and am holding a banana and I say, hey, here's a banana, most people are not going to say, you idiot, that's an orange, when it's obviously yeah. a banana, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when when we're confident and it's just like, yep, this is the truth. This is, mm -hmm. uh, hi, this is me. This is who I am. It's a lot harder for people to stand there and argue. I mean, and I've seen it. I've seen it on Twitter just in the last week in ways that it's just like, you kind of look at it and you go, what, what is the point of what, what you're doing? What, yeah. what exactly mm -hmm. do you think you're accomplishing? You're just coming off like an ass. 
Yeah. I mean, my, my theory about a lot of these things is most people's stuff is about them. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's upset with me using pronouns that they don't like or a name that, that they don't like or something, that actually says a lot more about them than it does about me. Yes. And it took me a lot of therapy to get to this place because of course it's very natural because my stuff is about me too, right? So I think, oh my God, they hate me and I'm going to like take this very personally. And I've learned not really to do that. And I'm like, okay, let me try and see from their point of view. Um, and I find it very helpful to kind of put myself in other people's shoes even if that person is what might initially be a repulsive kind of attitude to me, I'm still being like, okay, oh, this person is feeling a lot of insecurity because if they've been living in some very privileged majority for a long time and never known anything else, it's a really scary time, right? It doesn't matter that like that's a lot less scary than other scary things that are happening to other people. It's still scary for them. And I feel like having some sympathy for that allows me to kind of sometimes meet them in a place where I can. It doesn't work for everyone, but it works, I would say, much more than I thought it would initially. That's so interesting because I would be tempted to just be like, okay, you go on with your life and I'm not even going (laughs) to engage with you because largely it seems to me like it's probably not worth getting that worked up over and putting that much energy into. So it's interesting to me that, you know, it seems to be worth it some of the time for you. Yeah. I I mean, I think obviously it's good to pick your battles. Um, And I think generally I try and do this in real life, not on the internet so much um, because internet just exasperates all these things. Mm But I think I think it's it's for me anyway. I have the spoons to do it. Um, not everyone does, for sure. And and like actually, we were in a bar one night, and and it was a polyamory social. So it was it was mixed, you know, lots of genders, lots of people, but we're all the poly crowd. So we were kind of the weird crowd, very high trans components. Like, and there was some the, there was some people smoking outside, and the window was open, and the smoke was blowing in, and everyone's like, oh my god, the smoke is terrible. And there were a bunch of really dudeish guys just sitting by the window. And everyone's like, oh, can we go ask them? Like, can someone ask them to shut the window? And they're like, Stacy, can you do it? And I'm like, of all people at this table, why are you asking me? <laughs> There's like 20 people around this table. Like, Stacy, you're the only one who can go talk to them. And I'm like, a bunch of you are not trans and you're picking me to do it. And I'm like, and I looked around and went, you know what? I actually am the one. And so I was like, I don't really want to talk to them either, but at least I can. And, and it was so funny because everyone was terrified of these guys. And there was like, you know, five guys just having, having a drink in a bar, but there were only guys in that group. And so I went up and I was kind of like, hey, do you mind closing the window? And they really did not want to. They were like, no. And I was like, look, sorry, the smoke's coming in or whatever. And they're like, uh, and they were sort of looking at me like, what is happening? What is this freakish thing? And one of them got up and went, okay. And he sort of shut it like about halfway. And I kind of noticed that was the only non-white one in the group. <laughs> I was like, interesting, <laughs> very interesting. Very. <laughs> so, and I went back and I went, you know what? I got a partial victory. I'll take it. And so, you know, there was less smoke. <laughs> right. Wow. Oof. But yeah, that is that is interesting that they picked you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, and and I think I think in all movements you need all types of people, and so you know everyone does different things. Like I'm not really someone who's very like going to be confrontational. I'm not going to go up and yell at people in the street or something like that. But I can do my thing, and I very much admire other people who can do their thing. And I feel like we all kind of work you know, in different ways to kind of achieve the same goals. This is how movements really, really happen. And I feel like one of the ways in which I can do that is to kind of be a bit of a, a bridge between different worlds, because I think we live in very siloed times. Like, you know, it's if you don't like what people are saying, you just, you know, delete them off your Facebook or whatever, mm-hmm. and you don't have to hear them and they don't have to hear you, but then they don't hear alternate voices and so on. Um, and, you know, I've kept a couple of like, you know, very right-wing people on my my Facebook. Um, I don't really love seeing what they post, but I'm like, it's sometimes good to keep an eye on what's happening. And also they get to keep an eye on what I'm doing too. And, you know, it, like this stuff sort of bleeds across slowly. Um, and 
Yeah. And and I, by no means does everybody you know need to do this. It's just that I feel like I personally have some spoons to do it, so I'll do it. Um, and, you know, if that gets exhausting for me, I'll stop doing it. But, you know, I'm I'm finding it's actually pretty easy. And I think when it comes to C-students, it's a completely different story because I'm the one in the position of power. And I think understanding where my power is is really, really useful um, because basically nobody misgenders me in class because I'm marking their exams. So, you know, <laughs> I'm sure there's some bigots in my classroom, but that's irrelevant because they're not going to say anything. <laughs> and so, right. and I think that just sort of normalizes it. And I, and I also think there's probably some students who, I don't know, in five, 10, 15 years time might think about transitioning and go, you know what? I did have that professor once way back in the day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's good that I could be doing that I will never know about. And, you know, I just make a point of connection. And I often think about the very first trans person I knew was a librarian in my university when I was an undergraduate. And and I turned up as this, you know, naive 18 year old. And it's like, oh, this, there's this, you know, person there with this very deep voice and, you know, looks like a man in a dress and so on. Um, and she would sort of like, she'd wander around and, you know, sort of you're supposed to keep quiet in the library and people would just talk a lot. And every so often she would just put on her man voice and like, this booming voice from nowhere would come out and no one was expecting it because the, the sort of library monitor is is in a dress and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's really quite amazing, actually. And it really shut people up because they just had no idea how to cope. And and I often sort of thought back to her because I was like, she was just around all the time, even though I probably barely spoke a couple of words to her in my life. That's kind of like a magic power, honestly. Somebody said, actually, that trans people have this amazing ability to travel in time uh, because if you transition, well, all the people you used to date now have a same-sex partner or something. (laughs) You can really, really mess with their history. (laughs) Yeah, that is kind of true. Yeah. So what what do you think are, like, the, the biggest misunderstandings that people have about transitioning or trans people like if if you could you know address the one or two biggest things yeah i i think for me anyway like i remember really facing down like my family who were really shocked and in tears and my mother said like i thought i knew you and i was in this mode of being like i'm still me like i had this just like i'm still me i might have different hair and different clothes and so on but i'm still fundamentally myself and i think that is in some ways the the key to it uh, it's like like I watched. Um, I was watching Quantum Leap recently. There was a there was a trans episode on that one, and they 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 have a trans character as a main character, and so that that's really cool and stuff. And then that character was saying something like like they were talking about these trans kids who were being oppressed in the in the different like you know past or whatever. Um, and and the character said like, oh, trans kids are magic. And then both my my partner and I, who was also trans, like we both went, that's actually not right. It's not that trans kids are magic. It's that trans kids have the right to just be kids. Like they're kids like any other kids, like they have their own, like, you know, foibles and quirks and stresses and all sorts of things. And they should be allowed to have a childhood. And it's like that that's where things are really kind of getting messed up, I think, mm-hmm. uh, because I think there's a this push in both sides to be like, oh, we've got to, you know, protect the children from this thing. Or we've got to like, you know, like, oh, no, but like, you know, trans people can do no wrong. And like, you know, if they do anything like it must be OK. And it's like, no, we're just people. We just exist. Um, and I sometimes think like I, I think that the gender stuff is the most obvious thing about me when people meet me. And yet in some ways it's one of the least important things about me um, now that things have settled down in, in terms of my gender identity. And so it's obviously there, but like of, of the big things around me, it's, it's much smaller. Uh, they actually, they asked me to be on um, um, a diversity panel at a math conference, which, which I you know do a lot of. Um, 
and they and they said like oh yeah we really want you to talk about like you know the trans experience and how it held you back from like you know your career goals I was like it didn't help me back at all I was a full professor by the time I transitioned this was not a barrier like you know yes I had some things in the back of my head but they didn't interact with my career at all and I said to them like look I, I can talk about queerness and I can talk about transness but like actually the thing I'd really like to talk about is class because class, that was the big one. Like I came from a working class background. I didn't know what university even was. Like that was a really hard challenge to overcome. They said, oh, we don't want to hear about that at all. Like, don't talk about that. Just talk about this hot button issue that you have. And I was like, yeah, the class one is way bigger, like to be honest. So I, I think I think really my answer is, yeah, we just exist. Like we're just people. And we're not just a hot button issue. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, ugh. I, I find that so frustrating because like you say, you know, we're all just people. We're not just one part mm-hmm. of who we are. We are all yeah. so many things. And mm-hmm. yet it's so easy to define people by the thing that's most visible or most odd or, you know, that that stands out in whatever way to you mm-hmm. about that person when none of us are just that one thing. That, we're exactly. So many yeah. things that inform mm-hmm. who we are and our experience. And I feel like we all shortchange each other all the time because I mm-hmm. think I think we all do it, you know, because it's so easy and it's yeah, it's kind of ingrained in us you know, mm-hmm. for a long time. So it's, it's, it takes effort to overcome and, and to remember that, oh, right, I'm a complex person with all of these different facets. And so is this person out on the street that yes. I'm looking at. And all I see is that they look scruffy or that they look like yeah. they're filthy rich or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And I I really wish we were better at remembering that. Yeah, it's it's very ingrained in us. I think we we as a as a species are used to sifting a lot, right? We're like, okay, I'm making very snap judgments because I, for whatever reason, needed to do that back in the day, and my my genetic coding is telling me make quick judgments because you know, like if this you know animal thing has stripes versus has spots, I I need to make quick decisions about it, and that's a really useful skill when you're living in the you know the tundra, <laughs> but it's not right. quite so useful anymore. Um, actually, one of the things my my brother said when I transitioned, my my you know. Like my, my father had died not uh, just before COVID, so so before I transitioned, and so so my my brother who's like a manly plumber and everything, um, and he said, "Look, I don't really get it, but like of all the weird things you've done, this is not the weirdest." <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "The vegan thing, what was that? Polyamory? I don't I don't understand that in the slightest." Like he starts listing like things that I, I was like, "You know what? You're not wrong." And he said, "At least I've heard of this one." He's like, I, I, I sort of know what this is. That's <laughs> like, wow, this is maybe my most mainstream change. Like, there we go. <laughs> That's such an interesting way to kind of be accepted in a backwards sort of way. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it actually, weirdly, it, it drew my brother and I together much closer than we had been as adults. We'd, we'd been quite close as kids, but we drifted apart a lot as adults. And and I have two sisters. And so I think suddenly my brother was like the only man in the family left because my dad has gone and now I've, I've switched over. And so my brother, I think, suddenly went, I, th- I think he'd kind of all, like he was younger than me. So he'd always wanted to be the older brother, I think. And, and I was like, here, you can have it. Like you can, you can have the patriarchy. <laughs> it's, it's all yours. And he's like, thanks. I've always wanted it. Oh, that's <laughs> so, funny. Oh, my. That's kind of a transition for him too, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean, he said he like he told his kids, his kids who were sort of you know twelve and fourteen or something, and you know, and he's sort of very carefully trying to explain to them, and they were like, uh huh, yeah, and and he's like, no, but do you understand? <laughs> and they're like, of course we understand, and he's like, oh geez, I guess it's I guess it's me that's that's not getting it really, and the kids are fine. Yeah, yeah, and it it does it is interesting. 
you know, a, a friend of mine transitioned starting during the pandemic. And it is really interesting, you know, because I am about the same age as you. And I've found mm-hmm. myself going, this is a very interesting, different experience in practice than it is in theory, just watching this because yeah. I don't I don't have any problem with it in theory, but it is really strange when it's somebody that you've known one way and now you kind of have to get used to, right, different pronouns, different name, different clothes, yeah. different look, different everything, you know, and it's it's not actually a problem except in adjusting what's in my head. And that is yeah. the part where mm-hmm. I sometimes go, I'm definitely older than I realized I am because this <laughs> is harder than I thought it was going to be. And I wish it weren't. But, you know, and, and and it's that point where you kind of have to say to yourself, well, I wish it weren't, but apparently it is. And mm-hmm. I have to kind of just be patient with myself because it's a learning process and that's all that it is. And and in that particular case, the name didn't change, which I think right. makes adjusting the pronouns a little bit trickier yeah. because they kind of go yeah, together right. in your head. And so mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think I think the challenge sometimes is like, like it's hard for everyone. I will say it's hard for me too. I've, I've, I've had like, you know, long before I transitioned, I, I knew people who were post-transition, no problem at all. But the people I already knew who then transitioned, I was like, man, it's hard to get the mm-hmm. name straight. It's hard to get the pronouns because it's just, you just file someone away in your head as a certain thing. And then you've right. got to now very manually remember it's a different one. Um, and, and I think that this is not really acknowledged that much as being a challenge. And I, I think we all have this challenge. Um, I had a non-binary roommate and and they use they them pronouns and they they were quite femme presenting um, and had a feminine name, but they use they them pronouns and I, and they they didn't they didn't go out much. So I was the major person kind of policing their pronouns. And I was like, geez, it's hard for me, but like, I've got to do all the work because it shouldn't be up to them. Right. And also, mostly, I don't talk to people in the third person. <laughs> you know, I talk to you and I'm using second person. I talk about mm-hmm. me and I, and I'm only talking about third person when mostly the person is not there. Right. So I was like, right, I'm kind of, you know, you're, you're outsourcing your, your pronouns to your friends, which is, a, you know, a complicated one because then the friends have to step up. And, and I think there's like, there needs to be a bit more kind of like understanding, I think, that this is, this is a learning process and that's not bad. It's, it's, you know, we all go through learning processes, but I think that on the flip side, like, like generally they say, like, if, you know, if you're struggling with something, you should reach outside the circle, not inside. So the person who's transitioned is on the inside. Well, the next layer around, like their family or whatever, they may well have some issues, but then they don't workshop that with the person who's done it. They go to their friends and then they Mm -hmm. reach out to their friends and you go outside that way. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say to like, you know, other cis friends, like, oh, geez, I'm really struggling with this person's pronouns and kind of like workshop that and come up with strategies. And that's actually a really good way to learn is to talk it through when it goes back into the center and it's the person who's actually dealing with their own stuff anyway, and now also has to support someone doing it, that becomes quite the burden. Yeah, Um, that's not fair. I think there's a narrative that's sort of formed that says like, oh, you must instantly just take my new pronouns and take my new name and never get it wrong or else you're a bad person. And I think this is counterproductive. I think this, this doesn't make a better world. It just makes us kind of like jump on each other when for the most part, it's people trying to do the right thing. And and what I've certainly found is people get scared of getting it wrong and therefore they stop interacting. And, and I had people like didn't want to invite me to things anymore because they were just scared of getting my pronouns wrong. And I'm like, I'd rather be invited and have the wrong pronouns than be stuck at home with no friends. Like, I mean, right. this is, you know, a really tough one. And and also it, it it comes with time. Like I think, like I, I remember sort of mentally thinking, um, you know, like I'll give my family a year. You got a year to get it wrong. 
after a year, you get it right. So, you know, but that's a long time to get it wrong. You can, mm-hmm. you know, say my old name, you can use my pronouns or whatever, but eventually you, you can't just stay there. You've got to eventually work towards getting right. it right. But there's a period of grace. And, and I think that like, you know, I think we could all use a bit more grace in our lives. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between I'm deliberately refusing to use your new Absolutely. name. Absolutely. <laughs> and I keep forgetting, but I really do mean well, and I'm going to get there eventually. There's a huge yes. difference. Yeah, that's right. There's a massive difference. And and I, I would say my experience certainly is I can always tell that difference. I have never had any trouble knowing who's just slipped up and forgotten, um, even if they haven't even noticed they've done it, versus who is deliberately doing it. It's not hard to tell in the slightest. Is there something that you wish you had known before you transitioned that, you know, you would want someone else who was thinking about it to know ahead of time? Yeah, I wish I'd known how much fun it was going to be. No one told me that part. Like, I thought it was going to be all gloom and gloom and dreariness and people harassing me and, and so on. I was like, I'm having the best time. Like, this has been amazing. Um, what I didn't realize, too, was just how how much my stock went up. I, I was on dating apps uh, before, and I would get, like, you know, a hit or two a week, maybe. And suddenly, I was bill of the ball. Everyone was into me. And I was like, well, wow. this is lovely. This is awesome. This is great. And I was like, oh my God, this is too much. And I was like, ah, now I am swamped by people. I go on, you know, like, I mean, I was going on Grinder, and I'd been on Grinder before. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, I'm getting a lot of people on Grinder. Okay, I understand that one. But then I would go on, you know, more kind of like, like, you know, I guess more heterosexually oriented dating apps and stuff. And still, I was getting a lot of people. And I was like, I'm still the same person. I've got, you know, slightly different looking photos. Um, but, you know, as you can hear from my voice, I've not done any like, you know, um, uh, voice training. I'm not on HRT. I'm not, uh, I haven't done any surgeries. I'm, I'm, I am I'm. look fairly femme to begin with. Um, um, pre-transition people often, you know, would like mistake me for a woman. Um, and then I just decided to lean into that. And I was like, you know what, I think I can get away with it. So I'm just going to do that. And I found for me, a lot of the external accoutrements sort of having like the hair and the makeup and the, the clothes and so on, they work for me. Um, uh, especially like shaving my body and stuff like that. I suddenly, oh yeah, I feel very firm when I do these things. And that for me is good enough. And other people make different decisions and that's great for me. Like, I, I think actually, uh, yeah, the other thing that I, I wish I'd known was like, like I had some sense of like, you have to be very, very far in some level of transition, like in order to do it. And so particularly for me, I was kind of like, I don't really want to get any surgeries. And that just wasn't the thing I was into. And I was like, okay, well then I guess I can't transition. And it wasn't until my my boyfriend who was the Planned Parenthood um, guy, he was like, oh no, 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 you can totally do that. And I was like, you can? I was like, oh, then I'm doing it. Like I would have done this years ago if I'd known. And and so I was like, you know, I like I like a lot of things that that I was born with and I don't want to do anything about them particularly. And I say, I might change my mind later. I, you know, like I didn't really see the transition coming in some ways, so I don't know what's around the corner, which I find exciting. Um, but for now, I'm quite happy with you know the bits that I have, and other people make different decisions. Uh, but not everyone. I, I I remember the first trans woman I dated. Like I asked her if she was going to get surgery, and she's like, "No, no, I don't really want to do that." And I'm like, "Really? You don't have to do that?" Like, "Oh, okay, that changes a lot of things." And um, and so yeah, I think like just knowing that it's a big tent actually. Like like you you know like like in a way you're trans if you are kind of like at this disjunct between the gender you were born with and kind of anything else, right? And I actually talked to my ex-girlfriend and she said, yeah, I'm I'm having some feelings. And I was like, okay, what are you having? And she's like, I I don't know if I'm trans or not. And I'm like, okay, let me give you a simple test. And so her name was Lillian. And I said, if I say Lillian, he's a great guy. How does that sit for you? And she's like, that feels totally fine. I'm like, okay, then you're trans. You don't have to do anything about it, but you're trans. And she's married with kids and quite happy doing that. Not... I think, not particularly interested in changing any of this, but 
she's trans. And so, you know, that's just, you know, where she's at. There's people then who want to take steps or whatever, but you can exist in this way if you like. That's so incredibly clarifying in a way that I wouldn't have thought that that you could do that. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, we get to choose our own destinies in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people grew up with the fact that, you know, they were told a lot that you can't, right? And actually, you can. <laughs> and, and it's it's very freeing, and it's also very scary. And and I think that, I think people who are more mired in the old ways of thinking are like, no, you just have to accept your lot in life. And I think what I'm seeing, particularly with sort of younger people coming through, who I see both in my students and then also, like, you know, in the trans community, which, you know, tends to be a bit younger and stuff, I'm like, wow, here are people who are saying, like, no, no, we don't have to play it your way like just because you've done it for forever doesn't mean we have to and they're really changing it and i'm like this is very inspiring like this is unbelievable because i was like wow if i'd known that we could have said no i don't want to do the way my parents did i want to do something else i was like i would have done that too like right. we just didn't have the power to do that we just sort of like, okay i better suck it up and you know live whatever life is is kind of handed down to me and and so i'm very much loving being able to kind of like live my life as mine i'm like i only i only have one life and i get to do it the way i want to do it yeah, I think that applies in so many ways in so many areas. And I've, mm -hmm. I've seen a lot in the last couple of months that leads me to conclude that especially for Generation X, there's like the, I'm guessing, maybe half of us that are much more like the mm -hmm. boomer generation that want all of this traditional, everything has to be that way. and And then there's the other half of us that are like, Boy, look at these millennials and Gen Zs. Yeah. And you y'all go, go. We didn't know we could do this. Y'all go for it. You know, change everything. Just upend all of it. And when we we may be too old to come with you, but we're gonna sit here and applaud you from the sidelines because this is awesome. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But the funny thing I've I've noticed about kind of like the, the younger crowd is like when when confronted with new concepts. They're very adept at it. And mm -hmm. so, for example, polyamory, right? I, I started dating this guy who was a trans guy, and he'd never heard of polyamory. And, and he was quite a bit younger. And he was like, oh, okay, so how does that work? And I was like, oh, well, you know, date multiple people, and everybody knows, and it's all ethical. And so on. he went, oh, yeah, okay, that seems quite reasonable. Whereas I feel like I talk to people my age, and I try to explain polyamory for 20 plus years that I've been doing it. They're like, but how, how could you love more than one person? I'm like, do you love more than one parent? Do you love more than one child? You can do it all the time. <laughs> They're like, oh, but, 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 where's the younger crowd? are just like, yeah, okay, let's, let's try that. And, and so, you know, it, it's, it's quite amazing to me, actually, how, how much they don't have to unlearn. And, mm -hmm. and that's really, really, I think, like, it shows us how much we are mind in our old ways. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like I've been unlearning a lot. Um, and I, I feel like I have some commitment to unlearning stuff. Um, and I think that's because I'm an academic. I'm interested in all these things. A lot of people are not interested in unlearning their things. And, you know, that's that's a steep hill to climb for a lot of people. I understand why. Um, but I think it's also a bit invisible that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, a lot of the stuff is just my own baggage, actually. And I've got to, you know, I, I probably should deal with that. And it's sometimes easier not to deal with that. Instead, I'll just go and try and harass other people and so that I don't have to face my own stuff. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of that these days. Yeah, I think there's a real pushback. And and I think like it's it generally happens in these these times of, of like burgeoning acceptance. It's kind of like, you know, two steps forward, three steps back. Um, I think we're in the three steps back at the moment. But what happens is it's like, you know, there's there's reactionary forces who are kind of like 
they can see much better than we can. Right? I, I'm always amazed at just how well the right wing has their eye on the prize. Like they're kind of like, they know the threats that are coming to them, probably because they're terrified of them. And as like, they're generally right. And, you know, they were absolutely terrified of gay marriage because they knew once it got in, it's not getting out again. And they did everything they could to stop it and they couldn't. And, you know, in the short term, of course, they did a lot of damage. And there was, you know, the early 2000s was a really tough time. And then eventually the arc of history bends and then, that one's fine. Okay, well, we'll move on to the next boogeyman. And, and you know, I remember Trump came in and Trump was kind of like, he started, you know, picking on trans people in the military. And I was kind of like, oh, oh, it's trans people next, is it? <laughs> and, and it just yeah. seemed so, odd. I was like, really? Who, who who cares about trans people? Like, you know, in that way, like, why? Like, there, there seems like so few of us. Like, well, I, I wasn't even identified as trans. I was like, it's just, you know, is it really anyone worth even going after here? Like, you know, the, like the, the, you know, the gaze of one. So, like, you know, we'll go to the next one. And, and I think this, this is what happens. But actually, I think also at the same time, it raises awareness. And so a lot of people go like, mm, actually, people are talking about trans. Let me look that up and let me, oh, wait, maybe that's me. And that's only happened for me as well. And, mm. and, you know, there's a way in which Trump going after the trans people, like, got me thinking more about it. And I would say like, it wasn't completely because of that, but it was like a factor for sure. Um, and and so like, I actually remember when Trump got elected, the night he got elected, I was in Canada, but I was with like two trans people, um, one of whom had like a partner in the US and a partner in Canada. And, and they, were, they were both much younger. And, and I was kind of like, okay, this is a, this is depressing for me, but it doesn't really affect me, but it is going to affect them. And I was like, geez, you know, imagine being a trans person in Trump's world and so on. And then of course I was later on. Um, <laughs> And, and so it's, you know, it's, it's a funny, it's a funny thing, I guess. Um, but I think in the long run, this is, this is one of the sadly necessary steps towards acceptance. Um, I think if you fast forward like a couple of generations, it's going to be just a, a no brainer. Um, but of course, in the meantime, a lot of people are going to suffer and that's, that's the real tragedy. Well, I hope you're right that in a couple of generations, this will no longer even be a subject that anyone thinks is worth debating. Mm -hmm. because. I would like to think that we're better than this. I, th I think I think we are in the long run. I think in the short term, it's very easy to to lose sight of that. Uh, but I think we are in the long run. I hope so. So I want to get to the other first question that I had, <laughs> which is that, you know, the last time we talked, we spent a lot of time talking about the disease modeling that you do and how you modeled the zombie outbreak, which I've finally late to the party, just started watching The Last of Us. So I've been thinking of you as I've been watching that too. Um, but, you know, I re-released that episode, gee, a year later, I wonder why. <laughs> and I've been wondering, you know, what, oh, how your life changed when COVID hit, you know, what, what happened? Did your, did your zombie research end up influencing what you were doing with COVID? Tell us about all of that. <laughs> Yes, yes. So, so I, I, I have been researching pandemics and vaccines and diseases and so forth for more than twenty years now. Um, and um, along the way, I've also I, I've been teaching and um, researching and stuff in various different countries. Um, I've lived through a number of pandemics. Um, I was in the Ebola outbreak in twenty fifteen um, when I was living in Senegal. Um, I've been caught in malaria outbreaks and all sorts of things. Um, and it was painfully obvious to me when it's somebody's first pandemic, right? COVID, everybody went around like chickens with their heads cut off. I'm like, oh, oh, you poor darlings. <laughs> first pandemic is, is it? <laughs> it's very obvious. <laughs> you can always spot the newbies. Um, and and I think having having lived in Africa, I was like watching people who just get very used to this. Like like when Ebola hit, I remember that somebody came up to us. We're all standing around a group. They said, ah, oh, there's Ebola here. 
And we all just instantly, without thinking, we all just took five steps back from each other. Nobody is touching anyone. Nobody's close to each other. And it was just, oh, right. Yes, we are social distancing. Nobody said the word social distancing. We knew what to do. It's Ebola. Get the hell away from me. Um, and so suddenly we were trying to buy things from a store and we were like, all right, I'm going to put my money on the doorstep. I'm going to step back. You know, you take the money, like you leave the goods at the store. You know, it was just like we instantly knew how to deal with this. And people took it very seriously. And, you know, that helps a lot. And I think with COVID, what I found was like, the thing I was just not expecting was for a pandemic to happen in my own backyard. I'd, I'd been used to going to places where there were pandemics um, or, you know, at least potentials and so forth. And and I was like, oh, right, now this is happening where everyone is. Um, on the other hand, I talked to a colleague of mine when it was first starting to spread. And she's like, do you think we should get into this new disease and this new COVID thing? And I was like, eh, I don't know. It's kind of boring, right? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, it is. It's really boring. <laughs> and I stand by that. It's a really boring disease. Now. Good news for us, because you do not want to get caught in an interesting pandemic. That is not a thing you want to be in, right? You know, HIV was a very interesting one. That is a really tough cookie. Uh, HIV, we're still searching for a vaccine. Like, it's a very, very hard one to deal with. Um, COVID was very, very textbook, right? And what that means is that all the traditional things work. Like, techniques that we use for COVID were like masking, distancing, quarantine, and so on. These are not new. These are things we did exactly in Spanish influenza 100 years ago. These things we've been doing since the 14th century because they're the basic things you would do with this kind of disease. And luckily, we didn't have to really invent new ways of avoiding the disease. So we had to invent other things, but like, you know, most of it is like stay away from people, right? Don't breathe in the same air and that will stop us getting infected. And, um, and then when vaccines come along, well, we've had vaccines for, you know, more than 200 years. It's like, you know, what happens when there's vaccines? There's anti-vaxxers right there. They've been there for the entirety of history of vaccines. There were anti-vaxxers as soon as there were vaccines. And so, for, for me, I think having a much more global point of view, I was like, nothing is surprising here. Nothing at all. Like this is this went exactly as you would expect. And and I remember looking at COVID and um discovering it was a it was an RNA virus um that had an error checking capability. So so HIV is an RNA virus that has no error checking. So what happens is when it, when the, the virus invades a cell, um it makes copies of itself and then some viruses like measles, they have a way to check the offspring to make sure the offspring virus looks the same as the original virus. And they will, they will correct errors in the DNA if this happens. And so basically measles is a very powerful virus because the offspring all look like the original. So every single, you know, virus particle that comes out of a cell is now a, you know, perfectly honed killing machine can go to the next cell and infect. And HIV doesn't do this at all. HIV makes just random copies of itself and there's all mistakes all the time. But what happens is that means it's, most of those viruses are not viable. Right? They, the HIV just has so many virus particles that it just hopes some of them are good enough. And that's basically how it, it goes about. Um, but it means that if you have any, any pressure from outside, any evolutionary pressure, the chances that a mutation might exist is very high because HIV has got all these errors all over the place. So it might well have something that actually just happens to work around a vaccine or around a drug or so on. So HIV is very mutable. But COVID, although it was RNA like HIV, it had the error checking like measles. And I was like, that's its Achilles heel. We will get a vaccine, no problem. And we had a vaccine within months. Like, this is astonishing. It's been 25 years for HIV, no vaccine. We have vaccines for, I think, about 12% of all viruses and none for any parasitic diseases. Like, we're not really good at vaccines. And yet, COVID-1 comes along and we get four of them at once. You know, it was like, you know, in some ways, it's biomedical triumph. Um, science is really good at coming up with some things and it's really, really bad at other things. I think we were not good at kind of messaging um, I think we could have stopped this pandemic in its tracks. Uh, most most pandemics, there's a window of opportunity where if you act quickly enough, you can stop it. 
we stopped the original SARS. We we stopped some other things, um, but we did not stop this one. And we basically dropped the ball in like January and February 2020. We could have stopped this, and we just basically chose not to. And I think we chose not to for all kinds of cultural reasons. We kind of went, oh, that's a problem for over there. Won't come here, will it? <laughs> and of course, we didn't listen to the lessons of history. Um, so we essentially chose not to deal with it, and then we had to pay the price for that. Yeah, and still are. And still are, <laughs> yes. Yes, very much so. So when you when you do your models, what do you think what do you think the future is with COVID? Like how long does it take for something like this to truly, you know, everybody talks about how the Spanish mm -hmm. flu was around for a couple of years and now it's just like the regular mm -hmm. flu and it's not really a huge deal anymore or that, you know, different coronaviruses or you know, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know, I may be mixing up my my, you know, stories from the last couple of years, but I know I've heard that like one of them and maybe it was the Spanish flu is essentially like a cold now. I, I don't, you can correct whatever I'm getting yes. wrong here, but um, until it's essentially no big deal and we don't have to be as worried mm. about it anymore. Do you have any sense from the the modeling that you've done, what it might look like, how long that might be before it's really just kind of out there and not something to get super worried about? I know a lot of people think that we're there now and I don't think we really are. <laughs> no. So so I think that the the problem with COVID is it's kind of in this sweet spot of like like it's quite spreadable. So so the R naught, like the, the reproduction number for um for sort of original strain COVID was about two and a half. Um and then for Omicron it's about eight, I think. Um so this is this is quite high. Omicron particularly is very high. Um measles is like 17. So it's not nearly as bad as it could be, but it's still quite high. So it's quite spreadable, as we saw, because it spread very fast around the world. Um, and yet it's not deadly enough. Like the thing about Ebola is Ebola, if it gets into your village, your village is basically toast, right? You know, Ebola is here. It's going to kill a lot of people. And what that means is it can't pass itself on very easily. So Ebola is actually not a very successful disease, right? You know, if, if you were a virus, you don't want to be Ebola. You want to be HIV that just goes in silently and, you know, lives quietly for 10 years with no symptoms and nobody really worries about it for a long time. That's a very successful strategy. And, and COVID is kind of in this, this little midpoint here where it's very good at spreading and actually relatively very bad at killing its host. Uh, the reason we die from diseases is not because the disease wants to kill us. The reason we die from diseases is because that's an evolutionary trait on our part. It is to our evolutionary advantage for the weak to die of diseases. That's that's why this happens at all. And so, you know, COVID is this new thing. Like it kills us sort of basically by chance because other things like it also will kill us. Um, but it's 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 not it's not deadly enough to kind of burn itself out, and yet it's too spreadable to kind of stop on its own. So that's why we kind of stuck with it. And I think we are going to be stuck with it for a long time. Um, I think the way that you eventually get rid of a disease that's now endemic like this um, is you have to wait some generations. You basically have to wait until essentially evolution takes over and that people who are susceptible to COVID basically, you know, age out or die out, either the disease kills them or they just die out for other reasons. Um, and then the children of the people who are less susceptible start to take over. And this is exactly what happened in like the Black Death, right? So on um, the Black Death, there were people who were missing an immune um, receptor off some of their cells. And it was a very tiny chance mutation. It didn't really give you any advantage, except in, when the pandemic hit, because that made them immune to the Black Death. And then those very tiny numbers of people completely survived. That wasn't that many people, but their children also were often missing the receptor. And then those children, those children, and now there's about 10% of Europeans are missing that receptor and it makes them also immune to HIV. So this is, you know, evolution in action over the last several hundred years um, is quite, quite incredible to see. 
because of this sort of chance mutation and so on. And so that may well happen. It may be that, you know, some people are, you know, less susceptible to COVID than others. Those people will have more chance of reproducing and just basically, you know, simple evolution takes over and fast forward five, 10 generations, like most people might be immune to COVID for that. On the other hand, it's it's an arms race. So the disease also can mutate. And if the disease, you know, finds some people who are not susceptible to one strain, but are to another, a chance mutation sends that in. And so suddenly now people are more susceptible. And often what happens is diseases go through a lot of like, you know, mutations as we saw with COVID and it's probably not done yet. We'll probably see more, more mutations coming. Um, and it might well be that it mutates into a, a much more benign strain. Um, and so essentially what happens is not the disease itself mutates, it's a replacement strain comes along and then it outcompetes the existing one. So essentially Omicron outcompeted the original one. So mm -hmm. Omicron was just a much better, more spreadable one. So that's the one that's mostly dominant now. Um, but future one could come along and it might be worse or it might be better. And we don't really know. Um, there was some thinking that diseases evolve in one direction and that's been completely overturned. Um, smallpox went in completely different ways in different parts of history. So it's it's very difficult to say. We could get lucky and maybe some mild form takes over and we don't even notice that we get it. Um, we could get very unlucky and you know, it's well, actually probably the most unlucky situation is what we're in, which is that it's kind of in the sweet spot. If we get a really deadly one, that'll kill off anyone who's even vaguely susceptible. And then the survivors will be immune and their children will, and that will actually get rid of COVID too. It's just the middle bit, which is where we'd like to be, which is not having people die. That's probably the one that keeps it around as well. So you were supposed to say that like in a year or two, it'll have done its thing. <laughs> Unless you buy my product. <laughs> oh, I mean, because we're all so ready to be done. And yet, I don't know. I, I have I have trouble with the people who are just convinced that it's all over. Because there are yeah, so I, many of them. I think and the I problem think is... Yeah, like we we as humans have one really amazing superpower, and that's the ability to tell stories. And mm. so that has got us through so much. I mean, you look at our entertainment, like we're really good at it, sitting around campfires for, you know, millennia. We're really good at this. But it also is used sometimes when it shouldn't be, for example, to just wish stuff away. We're like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to tell a story that there is no disease anymore. And, oh, it's gone, right? And we have the ability to really believe those stories if we want to. And collectively, we just sort of decided to do that. Um, and I don't know. There, there is an argument to say, like, well, what else are we going to do? We're going to stay in the houses for the rest of our lives, or are we going to do this? And the sad part is, a lot of people are going to die. And we've sort of decided as a society that we're willing to do that. And it's yeah. really sad. And I don't, I don't think you can turn that juggernaut around. Yeah, I definitely don't think you can. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's taken on a life of its own, and there's no, there's no change in its course at this point. But. Yeah. Yeah. It, now, I will, I will give you some more optimistic news, though. Good. I think please. this will help us for the, for the next <laughs> pandemic, right? The next time there is something like COVID, we will be on it much faster because we don't want this again, right? I mean, we moved on monkeypox really quickly. Like, we got people vaccinated, people changed behavior. Uh, people took monkeypox very seriously, far more than it probably warranted given the very small number of deaths that were happening. And people were really, oh my God, it's the next one, right? And I think this will happen for some time. Uh, I think that where we saw successful people dealing with um, COVID was people who'd really suffered under SARS. And so a lot of Asian countries, right, mask wearing wasn't a thing until SARS. And suddenly it is. If you feel sick, you put a mask on and it's quite normal. You know, it was quite normal in like, you know, the like mid early 2000s to be mm -hmm. on a bus or something wearing a mask if you're in an Asian country. And that just wasn't true here. 
that will totally have changed now, right? And like, you know, I was actually, you know, flying home from the US like last week and I had a small cold. It wasn't COVID, but I was like, well, I have a bit of a sniffle. I'm putting a mask on just because I don't even want to infect anyone with a cold. And I was like, cool, right? I can just do that. And no one's going to look at me funny for doing this. And, and so I think we've got some cultural changes. I think because of that, we will probably move faster and more collectively when the next one comes. And if the next one's like not so bad, as COVID, then we probably have a good chance of dealing with it where we might not have otherwise. Um, so I think there's hope, and this hope may last for a generation or two. Um, I think that we probably won't see another pandemic for a while because we'll be kind of really, really careful about it. And then, of course, people get complacent and they'll say, oh, yeah, COVID, that's just something my grandparents had. And, you know, <laughs> we won't worry about diseases and, you know, the cycle continues. Well, and I was going to ask you if there's, if you know, any mathematical I don't know, model pattern, whatever, to how often these things tend to happen. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a very tricky one. There have been some attempts to find patterns. There was a thought that that influenza pandemics were happening about every 90 years. And the thought was that actually old people were protecting us. The old people who had immunity from the last one were keeping us alive. And then when when they finally died off, then there wasn't enough like protection and we we're getting it. But then they sort of debunked that as well, saying, well, it's not quite the 90-year cycle. Um, that's what they were saying for many years, that like a, a big pandemic was overdue. And so when the, the um, 2009 swine flu um, epidemic hit, um, that was, you know, about 10 years later than the 90-year cycle. And so, you know, it's like, ah, you know, but but I think that like, there's a lot of randomness as well. Um, you know, th there's, there's conditions that cause a disease to jump from animals to humans, and those are pretty random. Um, when that happens is very hard to say. It, it looks like HIV jumped from bats to humans, um, um, sorry, from from uh, primates to humans, um, at least four times. And so, you know, we were never going to avoid HIV. It's like, you know, it only takes one to do it, and it did it at least four. So we were always going to get that disease. And so, you know, maybe if the original, you know, market where COVID jumped, like, you know, had, had been contained somehow, we wouldn't have got it, but we might have just got it again later. So, you know, it's, it's a very hard thing to avoid, and it's a very random process when that happens. Um, once it starts, though, then it's much more predictable. And in fact, one one thing we did was we looked at um, models that have been put out for diseases in in the beginnings of pandemics. So in the beginning of like you know the two thousand nine swine flu or the the MERS um, outbreak in the Middle East, uh, the SARS outbreak in two thousand three, um, Ebola in twenty fourteen. Like like what did the first couple of weeks? What did the models say? How good were they at predicting? Now that we have all this hindsight, and the answer was amazingly good at predicting the first wave. Like they really had it. Some like like the numbers were astonishing. It's like you have no data. You have two weeks of data, and you're predicting the entire pandemic, and you got it right. Like that is an astonishing thing. Yeah. What they were not good at was predicting when is the second wave, or mm. will there be a second wave? And so this is a random process. Once a wave hits, then we can do a lot. But knowing when the wave is going to happen, or if it's going to happen, those are really random things. And I think this comes back to the issue of stories, right? Like we as humans don't like randomness. We are not good with it. Like the idea of a disease is really scary because it's completely arbitrary. Like I can just be going about my business, doing my thing, and a disease can just wipe me out. And instead we tell our stories to be like, no, well, it's only going to hit the bad people. Only the people who do certain immoral acts will, will get filled by this disease. And sometimes those are correlated with things that are actually happening. So this makes it even worse. But sometimes it's only a little bit correlated and people expand this. Uh, and so it's very difficult to kind of separate that out because people really want to just believe it's not going to happen to them. And the only tool they have is to tell a story. So they gosh darn going to do that. <laughs> yeah. And we use stories to fill in the gaps too. Like mm -hmm. this is the stuff I don't know and I'm scared. So I'm just going to make stuff up to fill it in because yep. I need to tell myself something. Exactly. And then yep. it takes on a life of its own. And yeah. Like. 
<laughs> the storytelling thing is a blessing and a curse. It is. It is. It, it really is a superpower in so many like different ways, uh, but it's not always the one. Actually, my, my therapist uh, one point said to me, like, like, like I was, whatever the thing I was doing, I was doing the same thing again and again. She said, like, I just want to honor this thing that you've been doing. It obviously helped you in childhood. It probably really saved you. It did all these great things. However, it doesn't apply to every possible situation as an adult. And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you are correct. <laughs> that is absolutely true. It's like, I've got a hammer. I'm going to hit everything. Right. Everything is a nail. And it's like, right, that, that hammer should be used for hammer-like things. It doesn't have to be used for every single thing. And yeah, we do use stories perhaps more than we should. Yeah. And we don't even know we're doing it a lot of the time. Yeah. It's completely second nature. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well... Here's hoping we've learned a couple things that that we can use in the future to rein in our crazy storytelling skills when they're not doing us a favor collectively. It's yes. the collectively <laughs> part that makes it hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just ugh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the age of the internet is, is has been very it, it's a very tough time because like we can now spread those stories very easily and very fast and to a, a you know orders of magnitude larger group of people than we could before. And those stories don't even have to be true. <laughs> they don't have right. to have any basis, in fact. And and bad actors can spread them too, just as equally. So where we were really out of luck. Right? Yeah, the stories are their own virus. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Oof. So, well, on, on a cheerier subject that's also story-related, I'm sure you have some new kind of Doctor Who-ish project in the works or something along that line. I do. I do, yes. Yes. Uh, so so I, I've been doing the Outside In series for more than 10 years now. Um, and so that's a series where I get 100 and something people to write 100 and something essays or other things about 100 and something stories. Um, and so we we started with classic Doctor Who. We did new Doctor Who. We did Buffy, Angel, X-Files, like all kinds of shows, Star Trek. Um, and we are redoing classic Doctor Who uh, for the 10th anniversary. And so, well, actually, it's also the 60th anniversary of, of the show. Um, and that one is almost done. I'm, I'm really, really close to being finished here. And I'm very excited by this because the original volume, I hadn't quite got the sense of it. I was kind of like, like, oh, yeah, I want to say interesting things in an essay. And and people send me some interesting takes. Like, you know, like, you know I thought Genesis of the Daleks was terrible. I was like, cool, hot take, right, go. <laughs> and it's like, eh, it's a little bit boring, right? And it's like, I love the twin dilemma. Okay, yeah, sure. But like, you know, say something more. And and like, like I was trying to get people to like, really like say something different, like mm-hmm. not just usual. And the different, I realized, wasn't just flip-flop the common opinions. Like It was like, really say something really innovative. But people took that to really mean like, do it in a different format, do it in really wild and like very drastically like innovative ways. And I was amazed by the creativity that I saw. And I'm like, you're doing something very non-fiction-y, which is writing a review of a Doctor Who story in a really creative sense. And that mix is really, really awesome. Um, and so because the first volume looks very unlike all the other volumes, uh, I decided like, you know, my wish list would be like, just do it again. And so I have not completely different people. I have some of the same people, but they're all writing completely new entries. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I allowed one person to write the same story that they did last time. And what he's done is completely night and day different. So so it's, it's, it's wholly cool. different from before. Um, and we're basically using our superpower that we figured out of how to do this um, for, you know, doing classic Doctor Who again. Um, and, and, you know, Classic Doctor Who is such my original love. I, I'm always willing to go back to the well mm-hmm. on this. I've got a whole bunch of different Doctor Who books. And, you know, I'm like, oh, cool. Let's just go back and do, you know, another look at the invasion. Like, I'm so excited. I think I can do this all day. <laughs> so when does that come out? 
Uh, that should be on t- not not far in the future, I think. Probably, yeah, middle of this year is my guess. Um, I'm actually I'm waiting on one piece. <laughs> I'm, I'm so close to being done. Uh, I have two other books that I am also working on at the moment, so that's a bit of my my bottleneck. But I, you know, when I when I get my one last piece in, then I can start putting that together and send it off for production, and that should be out pretty soon. That's ATB Publishing. Um, Very cool. What are the other two books? Uh, the, one is the top ten diseases of all time. So <laughs> it's basically looking at pandemics through history and what's what's killed the most people. Um, and it actually, I proposed this before COVID. Um, and then I had a real problem because COVID came along and suddenly was number 10. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't really want to do a chapter on COVID because the whole book is about COVID in so many ways. And I mm-hmm. COVID is seen it throughout. Um, and then I was doing a bit more research and discovered I'd actually missed one. And I went, oh, actually this one way beats COVID. So <laughs> thankfully COVID is relegated to number 11 and it's not going to take up the number 10 spot anytime soon. So my book will be current for at least a few more years. <laughs> oh, well, that's good <laughs> yeah and the, uh, that, that one is actually that's that's done and should be out it's a popular science book so it's it's academic but it's populist academic i, I um it's a book series from the university of ottawa press where where it's the university that i'm at um that's it's called collections 101 and the idea is to kind of like talk about your academic field but in a really friendly accessible way mm-hmm. so so you know, the, the first book we did was um, uh, Islam in the West, and it was written by an imam, and it was explaining Islam to, like, the general public. And I was like, this is really interesting, because I know nothing about Islam, and I read that book, and I was like, I now know stuff about Islam, and this is really awesome, because it's both depthful, but also accessible. Um, and so it's basically a series that, that does that in different topics. And so um, I proposed that one, and they were like, we really like this idea. And and then, of course, COVID hit, and it was like, we like this idea even more. <laughs> so, so that are, one that one should be very fun. Are you allowed to tell us what the number one disease of all time is? Oh, I'm going to keep the number one a secret. In fact, I didn't even put it in the table <laughs> of contents because I thought the first thing anyone's going to do is like look for number one mm-hmm. and then not buy the book. So I, I chapter I, I do the chapters in reverse order. I go chapter 10, chapter 9. Chapter, chapter one is called, well, that would be telling. And <laughs> read the book to figure out number one because I basically did this. I discovered this is like pub trivia. Like everyone always wants to know, well, what's the number one worst disease of all time? I was like, yeah, I bet you do want to know. And, and what I found was... I, like I looked online and there were lots of like BuzzFeed lists and so on, like, you know, worst pandemics. And they all contradicted each other. They all had very woolly numbers that really stood up to no scrutiny. So I said, I can put my academic hat on. I can figure out these numbers. And I did. I have found the numbers and I have my sources. So yeah, it's it's like if for that alone, I was like, that's really cool. But what the book is really about is how diseases reshape societies. And so diseases have made massive changes on societies, some of which we still live with. And in fact, many of the things we live with. I mean, we, we bury bodies six feet under because the Black Plague was transmissible from dead bodies and they realized they need to get the bodies out of the way. So let's dig a hole. Four feet, nope, we're still getting infected. Let's dig deeper. And wow. they basically figured out six feet by trial and error. And you can imagine how awful that was. But oh. now that's ingrained and it's been ingrained in our culture because putting stuff into culture is a really good way of communicating to your descendants. And so we just do that as a matter of course. And there's all kinds of things like that. Uh, monogamy was a great way of stopping sexually transmitted diseases. Very useful practice. We don't really need that anymore, but we still do it. Well, there's a lot of, I don't personally, but a lot of people do. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, just, it's really fascinating to me about how many things just kind of like are here that we just take for granted because it's just a thing that, you know, we know because our parents did and so on. It's like, no, that's actually to stop a disease from the 1500s. You're like, oh, right. Okay. That disease is long gone, but you know, wow. yeah. All right. I'm going to have to read this book. <laughs> and not just because I want to know what the number one disease is now. Yes, yes. <laughs> what about the other yeah. one? Oh, the other one is it's a it's a, a book on how to write for scientists. Um, oh, because cool. 
I was reading a lot of scientific articles as I do in my job, and I was very frustrated with just how badly written they all are. <laughs> and so uh, it's, I think, a, a lot of people who write because they have to, and what they do is they hate writing. They, they, they love doing research and they, you know, will go and gather data and run experiments and so on. And they have their lab notes and they will like push them off to the very end. And at the very last thing they do is, oh God, I got to write. And so they will write up their first draft and they will send it out for publication. And this is a terrible, terrible idea. And it shows, you read things, you're like, this is not organized really well. This is really clunky. Like the writing is actively fighting against the information. Like, you know, and, and I've had so many cases where people have come to me and said like, can you help me publish my article? It's getting, being rejected. And I've dug through and got, oh, you have really exciting, innovative results in here. And you have hidden them under this like garbage dump of words that's just getting in the way. Mm -hmm. And so I just clear out all the all the mess and just rewrite it. And then it gets published in like high level journals and be like, oh, this is an amazing publication. And you're like it always was. It's just that the, the writing is really in the way. And the problem is most scientists do not learn how to write ever. Um, and what they do is they sort of kind of copy what other people have done. And what other people have done is pretty terrible too. So this is me basically putting on my editing hat and and because I'm, I'm a quite competent writer but i'm an excellent editor and so i discovered i have a real gift for editing and it's not really sold as like that marketable a skill i think people sort of think oh an editor is just someone who'll come and fix my my prose or something but editing happens at so many different levels and there's yeah. structural editing line editing and there's kind of like just making different choices and so i've tried to be transparent about all these things so that people can get an idea of like how to do this and i gave this to um uh, anthony wilson who you've had on your show before yes. who's my reader and he is a musician and a, a primary school teacher, and he's not a mathematician at all. And he read that thing and he said, this is really helpful. He's like, you know, um, it actually became quite a meta book because I start talking about the process of writing as I'm writing a book. And then Anthony had comments. So I started talking about his comments in the book about how to revise the very chapter that you're reading. And so it's, it's very fun to do. Well, and and I agree with you as someone who also is a writer and an editor that editing is an underappreciated skill. Mm -hmm. And and a really good editor can take a middling piece of writing and help you turn it into something absolutely amazing. And yeah, you know, if you if you view an editor as someone who's just there to scold you, you do so at your own peril, unless you truly have a terrible mm -hmm. editor, in which case you deserve a better one. Yes, but, very much. But yeah, no, a good editor <laughs> is your best friend. Oh, good, good editors like gold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 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 I think even you can get a lot of the editing benefits from just like showing your work to other people. And mm -hmm. I think that's just one of those ones that like people don't even think about. Like you can just, you know, show your PhD thesis to your mom. And what does your mom think? And your mom goes, ah, I don't really understand it. Like, okay, but your mom should be able to understand the first bit, right? And like, you know, like, like there's just basic things like that just could be done. And feedback from other people is really, really helpful. And I find a lot of people don't do it. Like they just kind of like write in this void of darkness where they're not communicating with other people right. and then trying to communicate with an invisible audience that they don't really know who they are and how their words are going over. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that I, I read something from Neil Gaiman a little while ago, and I know I just mentioned this on this show with someone else recently, but, you know, where he said that pretty much any feedback that you get from anyone about something that's not working, you should listen to. But Yep. you know, how they tell you to fix it, you probably shouldn't listen to. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yes. That's <laughs> I think totally... I said something very similar in the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What, what the point is people are really, really good at detecting kind of like, you know, crap. Like they're like, yeah, this is, this sucks. And then like, they'll tell you how to fix it. And you're like, no, no, I, I know why you think it sucks. It's because of something way back there that needs to be changed. Like, you know, that, that's really the, probably the secret. It's mm -hmm. for me, my job is then, right. Okay. They've identified a problem. Let me go figure out what the root cause of it is. 
right? The superficial manifestation is probably not the actual problem. It's probably something much deeper. And, and usually I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I got this. It's actually way back in paragraph three. Like that's what's causing the problem in paragraph seven. So let me go adjust that. Right. And, yeah. Yep. Well, this all sounds really exciting and really needed. So I'm glad that you're helping the clueless scientists out there, clueless <laughs> about writing, not clueless about science. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. <laughs> to illuminate the rest of us. <laughs> I, like, I, I think I've discovered this is a theme of, of me. I, I really try and give back. I, I, and I didn't realize that, that this isn't in everyone's wheelhouse. I'm always like, you know, like, like I think because I came from a very different background to where I am. And I was like, oh, wow, I figured out a lot of the secrets. Like, let me tell everyone. And I discovered people don't like that. Like, they're kind of like, oh, don't tell them the secrets. I was like, no, but that will help. <laughs> like, you get more people coming along. Like, this will be great. We'll all have a good party. And it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's turned out to be an odd thing. And I'm like, I will give people a helping hand up the ladder. No problem. And, you know, I, I like I like doing it and I like mentoring. I like giving back. Um, I do that in all aspects. So I think for transitioning, for writing, for, you know, science, for everything, I'm just like, let's see how can we make a better world. And I think at the end of the day, everything is local. We, you know, if we act with kindness and try and help each other, we will eventually get a better world because this will spread. Amen. And I can't think of a better note on which to end. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and so uh, this has been great. I'm so glad that we decided to do this again. It's been a great conversation. And, you know, I, I hope that your hopeful view of so many things that we've talked about turns out to be the right one. So. Yes. Yes, me too. But, I, but I'm actually pretty confident. I think that like, I, actually the disease book particularly gave me a really good view on history and how things work and how the same patterns just recur. But you, you can see things moving and changing when you take a longer view. It's actually quite hopeful. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, actually the life expectancy in uh, 1900 in the UK. So the UK at the time was the richest country in the world. Life expectancy was 45 in the richest country in the world. A hundred years later, it's doubled. Like, like that is an amazing achievement. And, you know, how did we do that? Well, some of it was disease management, some of it was clean water, some of it was like medicines and stuff. Like we slowly, slowly, slowly have made massive improvements in life in what's relatively a short amount of time. Um, and so I think we take this for granted because we only look back maybe a generation or two and be like, oh, well, I feel like I lived a little bit longer than my parents and a little bit longer than their parents or whatever. Um, and and the actual truth is like, we have, we have done very well. Um, well, hopefully we'll keep doing very well. Yes. <laughs> so Challenges in the meantime, but yes. <laughs> indeed. Well, thanks for coming and spending some time with me again. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been delightful. That's our show for this week. I'm so grateful to Stacey Smith for sharing her journey and her pandemic wisdom with us. And thanks so much to you for listening. Please leave a review. There's a link right in your podcast app and tell us something you've learned from a time of transition in your own life. And if you enjoyed this episode, please pass it on to a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com. And there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. 
If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.